Well, let me welcome everybody here. Um, glad you're here. Uh, I'm actually here on Sunday afternoon because I got news today that uh, Monday and Tuesday uh, we're probably going to get some uh, icy weather. And so we film on Tuesday mornings at the West Campus. So I'm out at the West Campus and I'm filming it to an empty room just so we can get this thing in the can and have it up online for everybody to watch. Uh, so I'm going to try to act like there's people in the room. Uh, it won't be hard because most of the guys are asleep on Tuesday morning anyway. But I'm going to uh, go through this lesson. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 33. And we're going to actually do three chapters today. We're going to cover chapter 33, 34, and 35. So we're going to cover a lot of territory as usual. But we're going to pick up where we left off in the life of Jacob. So let me pray for us and we'll jump right into it. Well, Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. Uh, thank you for technology that allows us to um, record this, this lesson ahead of time, just in case the icy weather does come. If it does come, Father, I pray for safety for everyone on the roads, that you would prevent anyone from getting in an accident, anything like that happening. Lord, we pray for your protection. But I, I just ask that this lesson will say what you want it to say, and that it will be received the way you want it received. Lord, thank you for these chapters, this particular portion of Jacob's life, and may you help it come alive in my life and the life of every individual who watches these videos. And we just pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So this week, our, our lesson title it has to do with the name, the new name that Jacob got. We covered that last week, and we're going to kind of cover it again this week because these chapters do. It's called uh, The Need for a New Identity. Now, you may be thinking, well, he's already got a new identity. He got a new name. But what we're going to see in these three chapters in particular is that he may have a new name, but he's not yet living out that new identity. He's still not living according to the name that he's received, which begs the question, well, what's in a name? You know, why is a name even important? Um, I know my name, Ken, means handsome one. I, I was well-named. Um, but our names, at least in our culture, don't typically mean a lot. In that culture, they did. And especially if God gives you a name, it means something. And so he's received this new name. He's been blessed by God with that new name. And God expects him to live up to that new name. Here's what he said right after he had that wrestling match with God. God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God, you fought with God and with men, and have prevailed. So what's going on here? What we need to understand and what Jacob needed to understand is that this name was not cosmetic and it's not superficial. It's not a nickname. Uh, God didn't give him a, a, a cute or clever nickname. This name was supposed to dictate his identity. He's no longer going to be Jacob, which means heel, heel holder, supplanter, trickster. He's going to be called Israel. And it should have an impact on the way he lives his life because that name literally means let God rule. And we talked about this in detail last week, but it's going to become important this week in these three chapters because we're going to find out that Jacob doesn't get it yet. Jacob doesn't quite understand the nature of this name and that it's aspirational in nature. It's something he's supposed to live up to 
and achieve in his life. He is to literally let God rule. And we're going to see in these chapters, he's still struggling with that idea because like all of us, he wants to be in charge. And up to this point in his life, he's kind of gotten his way. He's always seeming to win. Now we know that God is ultimately in control, right? God is the one behind this. God is the one who's orchestrating everything in Jacob's life. But from his perspective, it's like he's gotten one over on his father. He tricked him. He, he got one over on Esau. He stole his birthright uh, and the blessing. And then he's gotten one over on Laban. But what we have to understand is that God's trying to get him to understand that you didn't get one over on me. You, you have not had true victory over, over me, even though you think you've gotten your way. It's interesting that God says, you have striven with God, you've striven with me and with men and have prevailed. That sounds like he's been victorious. And we saw last week that, no, he's not really won a victory. He's only received the blessing that was already his to begin with. It's probably better, if you go back to the original Hebrew, this statement by God is probably better translated like this. You, Jacob, have struggled with God, comma, first statement, In other words, you fought with God, and secondly, and with men, you have succeeded. The reason I think this is important is because he's not succeeded with God. He has struggled with God. He has succeeded with men. But I think what this statement from God is saying is that you've really tried to treat God like a man. And it's interesting, as I thought about that, how many times in my life I have tried to treat God like he's a man. I I talk to him like he's just a man. I react to him like he's just a man. I argue with him like he's just a man. But he's not a man. He's God. And Jacob was needing to learn that you can't treat God like a man because he's not a man. You can argue with God, but you're not going to win that argument. You can try and win a blessing from God, as if he's a man, but see, he's not. He's not a man. See, Jacob really thought he could manhandle God in his life, demand blessings from God. That's exactly what happened on that southern shore of the Jabbok River when he and God went toe-to-toe, mano a mano. They, they, they went at it, and he remember, it says he held on to God and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. He's treating God like a man, like he can manhandle God, but you can't. I love this passage from Numbers. It says, God is not a man. It can't be stated any more clearly than that. God is not a man, so he doesn't lie. He's not human, so he doesn't change his mind. He's never spoken and failed to act. In other words, he's never said something and not failed to pull it off. He keeps his word. Has he ever promised and not carried it through? And the answer to that is no, he always does. He's not a man. He doesn't lie like a man. He doesn't deceive like a man. He's not like Jacob. He's God. And so this this idea of God being a man is part of what's driven Jacob's relationship with God. And it's oftentimes, I believe, what drives our relationship with God. We think of him as just a man. But see, God cannot be bought off. You can try. He, he can't be manipulated, and we try that all the time. Remember, that's kind of what Jacob said, if you will do these things for me, then I will worship you. 
But see, he can't be manipulated. He can't be deceived. You can't hide stuff from God. But what's interesting is how often we try to. Have you ever stopped and thought about why you don't confess your sins to God? Well, if you're like me, it's because you somehow think, if I don't tell him, he won't, he won't know. But see, God already knows. God knows everything about you. So we can't hide things from God. We can't deceive God, and we can't bargain with God. Once again, we can try, but like Jacob, what we'll end up with is a bad hip and a lifelong limp to remind us just how futile that really was. Jacob had to learn to Israel. Now, you're thinking, I've gotten this wrong. I've, I've left out a word or two, but I'm using Israel not as a name here, but as a verb because it means let God rule. Jacob needed to learn to let God rule. In other words, live out his new name. It's one thing to be named it. It's, it's another thing to live it out in everyday life. See, it's a calling. It's aspirational. This is what God expects of him, that you from this point forward will let me rule. It's not just a name. And here's what's interesting. As we go through these three chapters, you're going to see over and over again that Moses uses Jacob's old name when referencing him. He's already received the new name, but he doesn't get it used of him by Moses because I believe he's not living out that new name. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. He, he has wrestled with God on the southern shore of the Jabbok River. God has left. He gets up and he begins his process of meeting his brother and he lifts his eyes and he sees Esau. Behold Esau. Remember I told you last week, he, he's worrying about Esau. He's been worrying about Esau for 20 years. Ever since he left, having tricked his brother and had to flee because his brother wants to take his life, he has been in fear. And we're going to see that even though he's just had a wrestling match with God, been blessed by God, gotten a new name from God, he's the same old Esau. New name, or not Esau, Jacob. He's the same old Jacob. And Moses keeps using that name. Nowhere in these three chapters does he refer to him as his new name, Israel, until God reiterates it again later on in the chapters. So Jacob, it seems, is not yet ready to Israel, let God rule. And we're going to see how that manifests itself, that even though he's got the new name, even though he's been blessed by God, when he looks up, what he sees is Esau. Now, you got to get the picture. He has sent ahead all of his flocks, all of his herds, his children, his wives, his concubines, and they're, they've moved ahead of him on their way to meet Esau. He sent them in waves. And when he looks up, he doesn't see the blessings of God, of which there are many. He sees Esau. He lifts up his eyes. And it reminds me of this passage, this psalm, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes, the psalmist says, to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, I don't, I don't think Jacob is thinking about this passage. It hasn't yet been written, of course, but he's not thinking about looking to God. He's looking to Esau. He's fearful of Esau. He's fearful of what Esau is going to do 
when he shows up with those 400 men. So he's divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and those two female servants or concubines. Remember, he's got basically four wives that have borne him 12 children. And he's going to send them in waves, the two concubines first with their particular children, their Jacob's children, then Leah, the, the least favorite of his two wives, and her children, and then ultimately Rachel with her one son, Joseph. He sends them on ahead, and he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. Bowing to who? Bowing to his brother. So he arranges them all in groups, and then he goes ahead of them, it says, and then he bows before his brother seven times. Why is he doing that? He is taking the role of a servant. He is being subservient to his brother, even though God had told his mother when these two twin boys were in the womb that your older brother will serve the younger. But see, because of the tricking and all the stuff that had gone on 20 years earlier, he's now taking the role of the subservient one, the servant to his brother. And he bows down. But it's interesting, it says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept. It's not exactly what Jacob had been expecting, right? He, he thought his brother might fall on his neck, but probably with a sword, not with his arms wrapped around him. See, all along he's been fearing meeting his brother again, but it was wasted. The, the, the reaction he gets, the, the welcome he gets with those 400 men is not what he expected. And he's been worrying for 20 years for nothing. Man, I think about how many things I've worried about in my life and grieved over and woken up in the night over and, and they were wor worthless. It was a waste of my time. I didn't need to worry because guess what? God's in control. See, God, not time, had changed the heart of Esau. 20 years has passed and God has softened the heart of his brother. And all those 20 years that he's been worrying and anxious, he didn't need to be because God's in control. And if he would just let God rule. So Esau says, what do you mean all, by all this company that I've passed by? Remember, he had sent flocks and herds ahead of him in waves in, in order to hopefully assuage his brother's anger. And so Esau shows up and goes, what, what's up with that? What, what was that about? What are all these herds and flocks? And Jacob says, I, I was trying to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He refers to him as his master, once again, taking a subservient role. But Esau says, I have enough, brother. brother. I don't need any of this. Keep it for yourself. Now, this is really fascinating because what happened 20 years earlier? Joseph robbed his brother of the inheritance, basically. And so he's thinking his brother is going to be angry because he's now come back rich and his brother has nothing, but nothing could be further from the truth. He meets his brother. His brother says, I've got enough. And he says, keep what you have. I don't need it. I've been blessed. But Jacob said, no, 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 please. If I found favor in your sight, if, if we're okay, if everything's copacetic now, then accept my present from my hand. Please accept this gift from me. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. This is as good as seeing God because I know he must be involved, that he has healed our relationship and you have accepted me. So he begs his brother 
to accept that blessing, that those sheep and herd and oxen, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. He says the same thing his brother said. Esau said, I have enough. He says, I have enough. And he urged them to keep them. What's going on here? Sometimes, guys, when you study these passages, and especially these, these stories, these historical narratives, it's easy to just read them and blow past them. But you have to stop and go, why is Moses using this wording? Why is he telling us that these men both proclaim that I have enough? It's because God is all over this story. God is behind this. They had divided over a blessing 20 years earlier, right? Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. He dressed up like Esau. He deceived his half-blind father into giving what he thought was a blessing going to Esau, his favorite son, and instead he inadvertently gave it to Jacob. They divided over that blessing. Now they've been reunited by what? the blessing of God, through the blessing of God. God has blessed them both. For 20 years, unbeknownst to Jacob, Esau has been blessed, and God has removed the root of bitterness. See, Esau has no reason to be bitter because he's lost nothing in the equation. Yes, he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. He's been cheated out of his blessing of the firstborn, and yet... He's wealthy. See, God's in this. God has always been in it. And 20 years later, they both have enough. They both have been enriched, blessed by God in tremendous ways. But see, Jacob still feels that he owes a debt. You can almost sense his guilt, his remorse as he meets his brother. And he has an obligation to make things right. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to take this. I want you to accept this gift. He felt the need to make restitution for his earlier sin 20 years ago. And isn't that the way sin works? And guilt manifests itself is that we have such a hard time letting go of it, and it's always there. And so he wants to make it right. But the size of his gift really is a reflection of the weight of his guilt. Look at what, look at what he does. Look at what he gives his brother. And and this doesn't mean a whole lot to us in in our culture, but in that culture, in agrarian culture, this was huge. He says he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother. And this reveals that he had indeed become very rich while he was living in Haran. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. At least 570 animals he gives to his brother as a gift, as payment for the sin that he had committed 20 years earlier. He makes restitution. But see, what's going on here is still this desire for Jacob to be in control. It's, it's almost as if his name is Israel Jacob rather than Israel. See, he's not living by his new name. He's living by his old name. He he is living by the mantra of let Jacob rule, not let God rule. He's still trying to fix things. He's still trying to satisfy. What did his brother say? I don't need anything. But he begs him to take these gifts because he still wants to be in control. 
In so many ways, he's still the deceiver we ran into 20 years earlier. He's really not changed. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. If anything, I relate to him because I have a new identity in Christ. I'm a new creature, a new creation, and yet I oftentimes live like my old self. I haven't crucified my old self. I haven't died to my old nature. I keep bringing it back up. I resuscitate it. I rip the toe tag off and I, I give new life to it and I live out of that old nature again and that's exactly what he's doing. He can't quite yet live like Israel, let God rule. And, and we see that in this next section of the story because his brother Esau accepts the gifts and then he says, hey, come home with me. Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Where are they going? Well, he lives down in Edom, which is southeast of the um, Dead Sea. That's the area the descendants of Esau have, have begun to dwell in. But Jacob says to him, now listen what happens here. Esau says one thing, and you're going to see a conversation take place. Jacob's going to say another. And you're going to see the old Jacob kind of rise to the surface. He says, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. He basically starts making excuses. His brother says, come home with me. We're, we're back together again. Come home with me. And he goes, man, I'd love to. And I plan to, but I, my kids are weak from the journey. And then he says, and then my flocks can't handle it. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. He, he over-exaggerates. He, he tells this sad, sad story of his weak kids and his weak flocks, and he says, I just can't. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. You go ahead. You go home, Esau, and I'll lead on slowly. Everything about this story is revealing that so much has not changed about this guy. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to come. I'll drive the livestock at a slower pace until what? I come to my Lord and seer. What has he just said to his brother? You go ahead, I'll come up behind, but I'm coming to where? Seir. Seir is the same as Edom. It's the land in which Esau has settled. But he has no intent of following through on this. He's lying through his teeth. So Esau says, one more time, let me leave you some of my people. If you're going to come slower, let me leave some of my men, some of my 400 men to protect you as you come. But once again, Jacob responds, no, 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 no need to do that. I'll be okay if I found favor in the sight of my Lord. So look at what happens. It says, Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. He went home with the understanding that his brother's coming, that his brother has promised to follow him. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. He doesn't do what he said he was going to do. He tricks his brother again. Now, you may say, well, this isn't egregious as the first one. He didn't cheat him out of anything, but he's just proven to his brother he's untrustworthy yet again. You go, I'll follow. Esau goes, he doesn't follow. And here's, here's where we're talking about. They're just over the banks of the Jabbok River, which is just east of the River Jordan. And 
Esau has come from the south up. That's where they've met. He's going to go back south. And Jacob says, I'm coming your way. But instead, he goes across the Jabbok River to a place that he eventually names Succoth. He, he settles there. He, he makes a house there. He builds booths there. And so, once again, what's he done? He's lied to his brother. He never intended to go. It was all deception. He's paid his debt. He's assuaged whatever guilt he may feel. And now they've parted ways. And then the only other time in scripture we know that they ever see one another again is at the funeral of Isaac, their father. Remember when he left 20 years earlier, he never saw his mother again. Now he's going to go another extended period of time and never see his brother again until his dad's funeral. All because he's trying to be in charge. Now he'll settle and sucketh temporarily, and then he's going to eventually move west to Shechem. So he's moving away. He, he never followed through. He never did, did what he said he was going to do. And he's going to move from Succoth. He's going to cross the Jordan somewhere along there. And he's going to settle in a place called Shechem. Why is all this important? Once again, new name, same old behavior. New identity, but not living it out. He's not portraying the new person that God has blessed him to be. So it says that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So he's back in Canaan. He's back home. And he camped before the city. He's camping before this city called Shechem, and it's named after an individual who we'll meet in just a second. And we're going to find out that things don't go well in Shechem. Lied to his brother, deceived him, settled in Succoth for a while, moved to Shechem, and he's going to buy some land in Shechem, and everything goes south yet again in this guy's life. It says, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. He settles there and he buys the land on which he settled from this guy Shechem's father, Hamor. And we're going to see in a minute, they're Hivites. And I'll tell you where they come from in just a second. But it says he erects an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel. So what's going on here? Jacob has entered back into the land. He's met his brother. He's lived through that. He's actually, um, it's been a good experience, not a bad experience. It's not what he had feared, but he's lied to his brother. Now he's moved over to Shechem and he's made an altar. And he's gonna fulfill the vows that he made to God all the way back at Bethel 20 years earlier when he was leaving. Remember, he, he was lying there with his head in a rock and he had a dream and that ladder appeared with angels going back and forth, up and down from heaven to earth. And the Lord came and spoke to him and made blessings to him and said, I am with you and I will be with you when you go and I will bring you back to the land. And now it's all taken place. He's kept him safe. He's survived the reunion with his brother. And so he's going to now build an altar as a sign of worship to God. And he names it El Elohim Israel. This is really interesting because once again, that name Israel comes up. He names it in a way after himself, but here's what it means. God, the God of let God rule. Remember, that's what Israel means. He names this place, God, the God of let God rule. He's saying, this is my God. It's my father's God. It was my grandfather's God. He's my God. 
but he uses this new name, even though he's not living out that new name. See, God had done everything he promised. Everything he said he would do, God has done. Now it's Jacob's turn to do what God wants done. What does God want done? To let him rule. I've given you a new name. It's your new identity. It's what you you should aspire for. You've built an altar. That's well and good. But you've just lied. You've deceived. And now something really egregious is about to happen in his family. See, here's what he said 20 years earlier. If I return, remember this, that conditional statement, after God has promised to go with him, promised to return him, he says, if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And he's fulfilling that vow. He is building an altar and worshiping God. But here's what happens next. And this is where the story takes a decidedly negative turn in chapter 34. We're going to be reintroduced to Dinah. It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah. And that's going to be significant. Notice it doesn't say, and Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. It says, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. What land? The land around Shechem. So this young girl, we don't know how old she is, but she was born, she's the last child born to Leah, and she's going out. She's obviously of marital status. She's, she's not a, a child. She's a young woman. It says she goes out to meet some of the women of the land. She's, she's going to meet some people. And it says, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. Now, I hope I don't have to tell you what's going on here. I hope it's really clear that this is something egregious going on. This Hivite is going to see the daughter of Jacob, and he's going to grab her, rape her, and humiliate her. And then it says, interestingly enough, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. There's a shift in how she's referred to. Once she's referred to as the daughter of Leah, now it's the daughter of Jacob. And then he says he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. He's taken her against her will. He's raped her, humiliated her. Now he says, I love her. He's speaking tenderly to her. He's trying to woo her because now he wants to marry her. He's kind of got it backwards, right? Normally, love should come before lust if lust should come at all in a marriage relationship, but he's got it all backwards. So here's Dinah, and we're going to see through the life of Dinah, she's only been mentioned once before in the birth narrative. She's not been mentioned again up to this point, and this is the only other time we hear about her. And in this story, chapter 34, we're going to see love in a distorted way, lots of lust, and extremely poor examples of leadership in the life of Jacob. Remember, what's his new name? Let God rule. What's going on? Anything but that in his life. So he's the father of 12 children. One of them is a a female named Dinah. We don't know her age, as I said, but at one point she's referred to as the daughter of Leah. Why does Moses start out with that identification? Here's what I think is going on. If you remember, Leah was the unloved one. She was the ugly one, so to speak. She had bad eyes, which is a Hebrew euphemism for she was not very good looking. 
And it says that Jacob did not love her. He didn't hate her. He just, compared to Rachel, he had no love for her. But God loved her, and God opened her womb, and God blessed her. And one of those children who came from her womb was Leah. So it begs the question, does Jacob consider Dinah unlovable? Dinah has a couple of things going against her. She's the daughter of Leah, the least favorite of Jacob's two wives, and she's a girl. And in that culture, nobody really wanted a girl because they wanted male heirs, not female. And so there's something in this story that seems to paint the picture that Jacob had no real love for Dinah, and I think it'll become clear why, or or why I believe that to be true because of his reaction to what happens to her. We do know that Shechem has eyes for her. Uh, he, he, he sees this daughter of Leah, and obviously she's, she doesn't take after her mom in terms of the bad eyes because she's easy on the eyes as far as Shechem is concerned. And it says he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he, he, he humiliated her. But in the very next verse, it it gives us this strange dichotomy. He was drawn to her. He spoke tenderly to her. He longed for her, and then he demanded to have her. It's interesting, when he goes to his father, Hamor, he says, give her for me. He's telling him to seize her in the same way that I seized her. It's very aggressive. Go get her for me. It's really what Samson said to his mom and dad when he saw a Philistine woman. He said, go get her for me. Same thing going on here. Well, what's going to happen? This guy has defiled this girl. He's raped her. He's taken advantage of her. Well, who is he? He's a Hivite. What's a Hivite? A Hivite is a descendant of Canaan. And if you remember from last semester, Canaan is the name of Ham's son whom Noah cursed. You remember the story after the flood, Noah plants a vineyard and Noah makes some wine and Noah drinks the wine and Noah gets drunk on the wine and Noah goes into his tent, takes off all his clothes and he falls asleep naked. And at some time during the night or early morning, his son Ham walks in, sees his father naked and he runs out and he tells his two brothers and laughs about him. He ridicules his father. He discredits and he defames his father, makes light of his father's condition. And the two brothers go in and cover their father's nakedness. And as a result, Noah curses Ham, but he does it by cursing his son Canaan. And that's where the Hivites came from. They're descendants of Canaan. Well, how does Jacob hear this news? And what does he do with the information about what's happened? It says, now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the fields, so he held his peace. He didn't say anything. He waited for the sons to come back. So he said nothing, he's done nothing. And it's not until the sons come back that anything begins to happen. And then it says, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Shechem gets his dad. Remember, he says, go get this woman for me. Well, what does he got to do? He's got to go talk to the father of that woman. He goes to Jacob. And it says, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. As soon as they got news that their daughter has been raped by a Hivite, And it says they're angry, indignant, upset, frustrated. So what's going on here? Jacob hears but does nothing. This is very similar to the story of David 
and his daughter Tamar, who was raped by her half-brother, and he did nothing about it. And Absalom, the brother of Tamar, takes matters into his own hand because his father, David, did nothing. Same story here. Jacob does nothing. No emotions are in this story on the part of Jacob. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. He, he shows no emotions whatsoever. But what does it say about Dinah's brothers? How do they react to this incredibly negative news that their sister has been raped by this Hivite, this pagan? It says they're grieved, they're angry, they're appalled, and they want revenge. And they're going to do something about it. They're going to take matters into their own hands, and they're going to pay back Shechem for what he's done to their sister. But Hamar, meanwhile, speaks with them and says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. It's interesting that in these dialogues, Dinah's name is never used. She's like almost property at this point. They're bartering over this young woman. And he goes, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourself. Let's intermarry. Let's intermingle. Let's take our two clans and let's make a larger nation. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. And Shechem is bartering with Jacob and there's no reference in the passage that Jacob says anything. He doesn't even question what happened. He doesn't go, but your son Shechem raped my daughter. What do you intend to do about that? Are you going to punish him? There's just this dialogue between these two fathers. See, he's saying, give me your daughters and we'll give you our daughters. And it almost appears as if maybe Jacob is thinking about this almost ready to make a deal with the father of this rapist so that he can benefit from it. And all the violation of Dinah just gets brushed aside. Nobody addresses it. At no point does Shechem apologize, admit guilt. At no point does his father go, my son did something wrong and he will be punished for that, but he does really love her. And he may have really loved her. But it's just sad that they don't even use her name in this whole story. In the story, you see Shechem is driven by lust. His father is driven by greed because he really does think if we intermarry with these guys and he sees all the flocks and all the herds and all the wealth of Jacob, that this is going to be a win-win. I'm going to turn a negative into a positive. But Jacob's sons are driven by what? Revenge. And all of these machinations are going on behind the scenes. But Jacob is still trying to rule. He's still trying to handle this in his own way rather than let God rule. And what we see is that his sons have not fallen far from the tree. Like father, like sons, they devise a plan. And just like their dad, just like their grandfather-in-law Laban, just like their grandmother, they're going to trick, deceive, connive, scheme, and come up with a way to pay back Shechem. So it says that they, they address him who Shechem and his father deceitfully. It's very clear. They're deceiving. They're tricking. They're wanting to get back at this guy. Why? Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a, a disgrace to us. We can't do that. So... 
Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. They're basically saying, you've all got got to be circumcised like we are. Now, this is not them converting to the Hebrew faith. This is not some kind of proselytization program. This is them saying, you're going to become part of our clan, and this is a sign of our clan, circumcision. So they're going to use the sign of the covenant for a wrong purpose. So they demand that you all get circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. They have no intentions of doing this. It's all a lie. And we will dwell with you and become one people. And Hamor loves it. It's, It's great news. This sounds wonderful. This is exactly what we wanted. And they accept the deal. And somehow Shechem and his dad are able to go back to their clan and convince every male to get circumcised. I would love to have seen that sales event. How do you get that many men to agree to this very difficult surgery that's going to be painful? But they do it. And then while they're healing, the sons of Jacob attack. And it's really two sons, Simeon and Levi, who do it. They take center stage and they go in and they attack all the men of the village of the city of Shechem. And they kill Hamor, they kill Shechem and every other male to avenge their sister's degradation. It says, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure and killed every single male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Now notice the fact here is that Shechem has never let her go since the moment he raped her. It's like he's held her captive in his house and they have to rescue her from his house. She's been there against her will is what the passage seems to say. So these two brothers take matters into their own hands and through trickery, deceit, they kill every single male in the city of Shechem. And then their brothers get involved in verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds. They take their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now, part of you, like me, may read that and go, great, they got exactly what they deserved, and this should have been something Jacob should have made happen, but you're going to see that Jacob has a totally different reaction to this. He says, you violated my name. I find this fascinating. He's been given a new name. He's yet to live up to it. And now he says, you violated my name. What name? Jacob, not Israel. He's still worried about his old name, right? He's appalled that they would do such a thing as his sons, the sons of Jacob. And he he thinks, you've ruined my reputation. My name is anathema now here in this area. And it's going to come back to haunt me, not among the people of Shechem, right? Maybe the wives and the daughters, but there's no men now. But the surrounding nations are going to hear about this. He says, you've ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land. You have ruined my reputation, guys. I can't believe you would do this to your dad. I will be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. See once again that fear factor that creeps into his life? God's not in control. He's not letting God rule. He's worrying about others. He's worrying about men. He's lost sight of God and he's beginning to fear men more than God. He's not living up to his reputation. His new name 
has not yet set in. His new identity is not how he's living his life. But what's really cool is how God visits him. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And we're going to see a second time God is going to reiterate his new name after all this egregious stuff has happened. Look what it says. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. It's like he's trying to say, I've told you this once before. I'm going to tell you again. Your name is no longer going to be Jacob, deceiver, heel holder, supplanter, trickster. Your name will be Israel. Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God says it again. He reiterates exactly what he said earlier. A new name, a new beginning. He confirms it. He reconfirms it. I told you once, I'm going to tell you again, you are Israel. Let God rule. And then along with it, he reiterates all the covenant promises. This is like the the final stamp of God's seal of approval on him saying, I know what you've done. I know where you're struggling with this idea of a new name and a new identity, but guess what? You are Israel. You're no longer Jacob. And he says, I am God Almighty. And he's going to say to him what he said to Abraham and what he said to Isaac, his father, be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God goes up from that place after he has spoken to him. See, what's interesting about this is that it's all taking place. Verses one through eight of this chapter tell us at Bethel. What's Bethel? Bethel is the place where God visited him and Jacob saw that dream with the ladder and all the angels going back and forth. See, God had commanded him to return and he has, and now he's back in the land of promise. And God is saying, now that you're back in the land of promise, I will fulfill every one of the promises. But what's interesting in those opening verses of chapter 35 is that God told him to go to Bethel And before he left, it says that he cleaned house. He basically told it, get rid of every household idol. I want you to purify yourselves. I want you to get cleansed ceremonially. Why? Because his sons just murdered a whole lot of men in cold blood. And he knows we're going to go see God. We're going to go worship God. So he cleans house and he returns to the house of God purified. That's what Bethel means, the house of God. See, the second iteration of the name change is huge because God is telling him, you are to live differently. And what's interesting about the passage is, it's like something clicks and he goes, you're right. I need to clean house. I need to get rid of all the household idols. Why did he have them anyway? We know Rachel had the one she stole from her father, but there must have been others as well. Maybe they're they're female servants And male servants had idols, but he says, get rid of them all because we're going to the house of God and we need to be clean and pure. And his sons needed to be clean and pure because of what they had just done to the men of Shechem. So here's your questions for this morning. What do you need to remove from your life so your house of God can be pure? You know, when he was laying on that rock and, and, and saw the angels going back and forth, he called it the house of God. And then he said, it's the gateway to heaven. Any place you are, guys, is the gateway to heaven. God can meet you wherever you are. Wherever you 
are, God is with you, and therefore it is the house of God. We are the temple of God. What do you need to remove from your life so your house of God can be pure? What are you holding on to in your life that is really harming your relationship with God? In what ways does our behavior contradict our new identity in Christ? And how can it, it be improved? What is it about you that is not right? That is not in line with your new identity in Christ, your new nature. You're a new creature. The old has been, been tossed aside. It was put to death in the cross, but have you taken it down and have you given new life to it? What ways does your behavior contradict your new identity? And then finally, I want you to end your time discussing how you might make 2 Corinthians 5.17 a reality in your lives. And that verse is the very first thing you see on the first page of your handout. Go back and look at it. What would it like to make, what would it be like to make that a reality in your lives? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these three chapters, they're jam-packed. There's so much going on. But the, the one thing that's going on in the life of Jacob is that he's wrestling with his new identity. He's refusing to live in the new name that you've given him. Let God rule. And Father, I do the same thing day in, day out. I fall back into my old nature. I take back control of my life. I want to do the things that I want to do. I want to please myself rather than please you. I fear men rather than you. But Father, would you show each one of us in this room today how we might truly let you rule in our lives and show us what we need to purify from our lives so that it might be the house of God. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.